Hey, and welcome to the 24th Womanthology Podcast. My name is Fiona Tatin, and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is Men as Allies. I'll be speaking with Kevin Poulter, employment law partner at Freeth, who shares how the pandemic has impacted on the world of employment and on women and other underrepresented groups in particular. What does it mean to be an ally? How can we all be allies and make workplaces more inclusive? Inesh Santos, Womanthology's associate editor, will be talking you through the written stories in the new issue. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website, that's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our new LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We are joined today by Kevin Poulter and he is an employment law partner from Freeth. How are you today? I'm all right. We've just been talking before we started recording and I am uh, pleased to say I've had my second vaccine this morning. So if I drop off and off the recording as in fall asleep at any time, it's probably because the fatigue sets in in anticipation, but hopefully not. I'm sure the conversation will flow smoothly. Well, we are glad that you were double jabbed and we are glad that you are with us today. So I'm going to leap right into the questions. The, the listeners don't know this, but we've known each other for how many years have we known each other for? It's going back a oh. long, long way. I, I, I was trying to think about the same sort of thing. And I've been in London, I think now for, gosh, 10 or 11 years. I think 10 years so it was way before that I think it was 2007 and I feel like our, our friendship during this time has built up to this moment well that's a lot of pressure but I'll see what I can do to live up to it it's gonna be fine so we featured you in the written magazine before and we can link to that as well in the show notes but for those who missed it could you give us a bit of a brief recap of your educational background and your career to date so we know a bit more about you Wow, educational background. So I am originally from Doncaster, which for people who aren't familiar with it through going there on the train on the way to Scotland, is an old market town, mining town in South Yorkshire for almost 30 years of my life. I don't think I actually lived outside of Yorkshire. So I sort of state school educated, first generation to go to university. And why a lawyer, which is often the question that people ask. And I don't really know the answer to that other than my dad was an engineer and the advice was don't become an engineer. And I suppose this felt like as possibly as far away from that as I could get. That's what I ended up doing. And probably through a little bit of spite for some teachers who tried to steer me away from it, thinking that lawyers only do criminal law and and that's the only option. I went to off university, had a great time, and now an employment law practitioner. It comes down to working with people, resolving problems, all the stuff that I probably should say if I was being interviewed for a job. I like chatting, as you can probably tell, getting to know people, hearing their stories, and, and that's part of the job, and, and uh, getting paid to help them out. So if we're imagining, Kevin, on a day-to-day basis, 
what types of things are we imagining you doing? That's a good question as well. It's almost impossible. I think this is one of the jobs where I can have in my head the plan for the day, a plan for the week, and very rarely will it come true. Things crop up. Uh, a lot of the things that we end up dealing with are quite urgent, whether it's dealing with people who sort of raising complaints, grievances, dealing with disciplinary issues. Unfortunately, as has been the case over the last uh, 12 months, especially looking at sort of restructuring organizations, redundancies, dealing with things that are sort of business critical for both employers, but also for employees as well. And I think it's been good for me to keep that balance uh, between really seeing both sides of the fence and, and being able to advise uh, on both sides of the fence and to see how best practice develops because of that. I think you can almost become blindsided in some ways by only ever looking at things through one particular point of view. And I think the benefit of uh, the work that I do is to see the overarching picture and actually being, to a small extent, the driving force behind some developments and change and best practice. So what does that mean? People think of it as boring. I don't think of it necessarily as boring, but the contractual stuff, the advisory stuff, dealing with policies, uh, employment contracts for people, service agreements for directors, dealing with processes, which is effectively what redundancies, disciplinary issues, grievances are to a point, buying and selling businesses, possibly a little bit of nosiness just to find out more about another business, seeing how people work. It comes down to human nature, human interest, and seeing how people live. You're a people person. Yeah, and it, I don't think that's a bad thing. Sometimes it it does make it more difficult to detach from the day job into sort of the evenings or the weekends. And I'm fortunate in that because I look after sort of both sides of the fence, like I say, I do sleep well at night. <laughs> Sometimes uh, people are surprised by that. But, but I like to think that most of my clients, if not all my clients, if they're listening, are, are good, uh, good employers. And I think the vast majority, I should say this as well, the vast majority of issues that I've dealt with, of organizations that I've come across, the vast majority of people want to do the right thing. Sometimes they get it a bit wrong. Sometimes they get it very wrong. But nobody relishes the opportunity to fire people, to make people redundant, even to a point to discriminate, to harass. Nobody goes out there usually setting out to achieve those things. They do happen, unfortunately, and sometimes there are people who do it intentionally. But more often than not, I think just... A lack of experience, a lack of awareness, and I think helping people through that hopefully is a good thing to do. And just to give a bit of context as well to the listeners, mm-hmm. this is our male allies issue and podcast. So I hope you don't mind, but I've got you down as a male ally. I'll so- take it. I'll take it. I'll enter the CV. Uh- <laughs> Get it on them. Or or manbassador was another term that we toyed with. But we went with male allies. But I I, I think I'll go with that one just for now. So we're going to be chatting with you from the point of view of by virtue of what you do, your job, you know Mm. about diversity and inclusion and about all the things around that. Those are the types of things we're going to be delving into today with you. I'm going to start by Mm. asking you about the other day I started calling it the covid just COVID. I think it is getting to the, sort of the COVID era is maybe the way we're going to look back on this. Yeah. So how has COVID impacted on how you work? But I'm also thinking about the things that you're working on. Well, like most people who work in offices, I've been working at home since last March, and as most people have. And that has been, I suppose, the most immediate 
shocked the system the the need to change how we do things i'm still sat here at the dining tables of more than 12 months on and that's a big adjustment and i I think having gone through that and experienced that now having not been somebody who really worked from home ever before if you're getting the washing machine delivered fair enough you might take a day off and spend an extra long lunch time watching loose women but other than that i've actually found it more difficult to work from home. I think because of those distractions that are inevitably there, you put the washing on or do do, do something else. So being forced to work from home was, was a bit of a shock. And I think... Now I can say that I've managed to succeed and to work effectively, productively. Unfortunately, I think it has meant longer hours as well. But I think that's, again, part of the job. As most people will remember, we don't have to go too far back for those sort of four or five o'clock announcements every day on the TV, which as well as updating us with the COVID news, we're also introducing new laws, seemingly from time to time, not necessarily well thought through laws and having to do the normal job, the the typical day job, having to then deal with furlough, which was a completely new concept for, for, for the UK. It's not something you get taught at law school. We've never even heard of the word before. And so to deal with that on top of everything else, to deal with all the immediate questions around health and safety, which we used to deal with, but not anywhere near to the the scale that we do now. So thinking of all these different questions, dealing with, say, a day job on top of that as it normally was going on, and then having to really learn new law, sometimes in anticipation of the legislation coming through or guidance coming through from the government, was really quite hard work. And it did make for longer days. So dropping off the commute made it a little bit easier as well, of course. But that was quite hard. So the immediate things we were dealing with, like I say, it was what do we do with all these employees who can't go to work right now? What about the people who do need to be in work right now? What about this virus? What can we do about it? What about business travel? What about keeping people safe? And they were obviously the immediate concerns. And it was unfortunately not a case of there was of one change and then that was it we all knew where we were this was a very much a gradual change where the guidance around these things was changing frequently daily frequently more than uh once daily and the government didn't really do a great job of telling us about it we almost had to go looking for it and that's a hard thing again to to sort of to add on to uh your day job the flip side of it is that it did feel sometimes like we were doing real law. Sometimes the job can be a bit formulaic from time to time, but but this is getting right back to the sort of the nitty gritty, looking at what was intended when legislation was written. Sometimes in the sort of the sixties and the seventies, particularly around health and safety, when we were thinking about more about people losing an arm in a factory in a machine rather than a national pandemic. So that's been quite interesting, and oh, I suppose. The other thing, just to briefly mention, because I'm sure we'll talk about it more, is how this came on the back of of the Me Too movement around the time and on the back of as well of the Black Lives Matters. And how do we adjust all of these things that are happening in one one go and deal with them? Because there was very much this workplace revolution happening whilst not many people were at work. Let's get into some from the, the legal issues that are coming out at the moment from a COVID perspective, from a gender perspective. Obviously, it's womanthology, but equally, we're concerned about diversity and inclusion mm. more broadly as well. My perception is women have been impacted 
quite significantly. Yep. So particularly if people are, for example, homeschooling or mm. caring, and these things have all cropped up and, and it's quite significant. What's your take on the, the impact? Uh, it's a really interesting question. Over the next few years, I'm sure there'll be a lot of research around this. But anecdotally, just from my own experience, without a doubt, I think a lot of the caring responsibilities, as they always have done, fall into women. And nothing's really changed in that sense. Apart from, I think there's potentially now, um, and I hope this is the case, a greater understanding from the men as to what it actually means. I think that there's certainly been more men from what I can gather, going and doing the sort of the school drop-off and pick-up. They have been involved in homeschooling because it's been essential and they've been at home. The office hasn't been a haven to escape family life. It's been part of what they've been doing. And, and I know a lot of men have really stepped up, relish this experience, relish this opportunity, and really have an intention to continue as much as possible along that line and to take more responsibility at home, to not leave it all to what might have been assumed previously, the, the natural order for, for the woman to do it, which is unfortunately where we've been. There's definitely a, a significant section of, sort of male society who've really embraced it. On the other hand, I think that there has been and there will continue to be people who've hated it. So many who've hated it, who can't wait to get back to the office, who can't wait back to get on the business trips and be doing things. And I don't know if it's going to be universal that there is a, uh, a greater understanding. I would hope that there would be, whether that actually comes into fruition or not, or whether people forget about it quite quickly when sort of normality returns in some way or another, I, I don't know. But aside from that, I, I think this whole concept now around sort of flexible working, agile working. And, and when I say flexible, I don't just mean different hours or even different days, but where we work from as well. I think that has been probably and will be the biggest shift that we see. I've dealt with clients previously who have always taken a very pessimistic view, let's say, towards home working, towards flexible working. The big word that I'll keep coming back to, I'm sure, is trust. There's been a lack of trust and understanding. Um, uh, it sounds like a Luther Vandross song or something now, but uh, so I think trust and understanding have been sort of the two things that have changed. That uh, We've seen this throughout. When men, managers are put into the position that they're making decisions over, there is a greater empathy, perhaps, sympathy even. Uh, and I think that's what does actually create change. But that will happen again now. There'll be certainly more understanding around it, more awareness around it, hopefully a greater element of trust because there are other ways to measure how somebody is successful in their job other than how many hours they sit on their office chair sort of within the workplace or wherever they are, there's different ways of doing it. And I think now the big question is, how do we move from where we are now to this, and I hate to say the phrase, but new normal. I'm struggling to think of anything better. But how we're going to get Build Back to... Better in as well. We've got to get that one in. Well, gosh, don't turn me into <laughs> Boris. I'll try to stay apolitical here. But how do we sort of take what we've learned and keep it in people's minds? That's down to business. And I think with a lot of these things as well, just briefly touching on politics, because you brought it up, Fiona. Um, <laughs> a, a call me Laura Koonsberg. Well, yeah, a, a lot of the change that we actually have seen over the last 12 to 18 months has not been driven by government. 
it's not been driven by government leadership. It's been driven by business leadership. And very much so that even when we started in the first lockdown, before we were told we had to do that, businesses were choosing to keep their employees at home, to keep their employees safe, to stop the business trips, to take control. And that's what's been led throughout. Businesses really stepped up, done things ahead of having to be told to do them. Again, this is not every business, but I, I, like, I like to think that the large majority have done, have done the right thing. They've taken that on board and the government has learned from that. And even now when we're talking about sort of opening up places of work, places for leisure, that's been very much driven by industry rather than, I, I, I think, driven by government. And this is something else what I've seen. So hats off uh, to the people who have led on this uh, and done the right thing. Hopefully government now will take that lead and continue that momentum with whatever rules, changes, guidance, legislation that, that follows. You, you made a really interesting point about trust. I've mm. worked in roles for years. I've mm. worked from home. And the, when working from home works is when you've got the proper kit. Yeah. When you've got a good manager who yeah. will understands what you do and mm. who will just let you get on with it, really, yeah. and just enable you. It's about trust, but it, it's very interesting that now all of a sudden we're seeing that it's possible. It's been possible for years. I'm, I'm quite interested in the hybrid model now where we go and have a nice coffee <laughs> Some organisations are talking about having their office as a clubhouse environment mm. and you'd maybe go in a couple of days a week, work from home two, yeah. three days, go in, have your meetings on a couple of days. It saves me huge amounts of time, money in yeah. terms of commuting. So it, it, there are positive benefits there. Yeah, and I think it's about each organisation now working out which model best suits them. And one of the things that I've been really concerned about over the last year or so has been how do we... So supervise effectively, I mean, a proactive supervision rather than just looking over somebody's shoulder. And um, how do we supervise and train sort of junior lawyers? How do we sort of keep their education moving forward when a lot of that comes from just being in an environment and overhearing things, being able to bump into people in the kitchen? How do we keep that going? How do we keep engaged with people in a remote way? The businesses that will continue to succeed and flourish are the ones who've done that well during this period to keep that atmosphere the, the spirit of the workplace in some way alive the culture the culture thank you that's probably what i was digging for how do we keep that culture alive and, and special to us that's really difficult to do whilst also taking on board the upgrade to the tech to the comms strategy to the, the tools that we have available to us how do we do that and and, and keep doing that now don't get me wrong i would much rather speak to a group of people Sort of in, in, in person rather than do things over Zoom. But we don't have place in an office to get 500 people in, whereas I can do a Zoom seminar to, to thousands of people at the, at the same time. And we've done it and it's worked and people are engaged and we've had this whole opportunity to reach out to a new audience. But how do we use all of this potential whilst also then directing it back to our own people. It's about keeping that engagement alive. And the people who've been looked after, treated well and engaged with during this last period will the ones who stick around, who reinvest in the organisation, who do sort of owe, owe some sort of duty to their employer. I think we're already seeing it. The jobs market is opening up now. A lot of people are moving to new jobs, new opportunities. Unfortunately, for those, a lot of those people who are in self-employment, they've had to 
find other jobs, particularly those in the creative industries. It's been a really brutal time for them. But now they're retraining. Now they're doing different things. Some of them relishing it, some of them doing it to get by and, and hopefully going back to that original plan. But, but there's been a lot of movement. And the thing we haven't talked about, not to be political again, but we haven't talked about Brexit. And that's really been one of the other drivers which has led us to this strange period where we don't have enough people in work, but we've got a lot of people out of work. And how do we fill these vacancies when a lot of European nationals especially have left the UK for COVID reasons, for Brexit reasons, for many reasons, but bringing them back now or appealing to them is going to be much more difficult. And we've had people moving so into kind of temporary roles on the news. You had somebody who was a cellist and then I'm now delivering parcels for somebody or I'm a tyler or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So there's that, well, I've got to do stuff to survive. Those people mm. who are professional musicians, whatever, they're, they're mm. obviously wanting to hopefully get back into what they were doing when everything comes back. This is, again, anecdotal and only because I've particularly noticed it in the last few weeks. Delivery drivers, historically, years and years ago, believe it or not, I was a, a postman during the school holidays. Really? Did you have a bike? It was, I, had, I didn't have a bike. I had a big bag uh, to carry around. I didn't even get a uniform. I had to wear my sort of shorts and T-shirts. It was casual work in that sense. <laughs> but I remember there being very few women. Now we're going back, gosh, 20, 25 years. But even more recently... I think particularly pre-lockdown, a lot of the delivery people that you would see coming to you through the various companies were mostly men. Now, I think there's certainly a significant minority, women delivery drivers sort of all over the place. There's new opportunities opening up. It's still relatively sort of basic work in that sense, but it's work which is available for people to do. And they're, they're relishing the opportunity to do it. And if this is opening new opportunities up then fantastic but normally part-time work is not as well paid as that's true as well and if you're looking for part-time work there's an education piece with employers to try and open that up and give people who are maybe underemployed or who are looking Mm. for opportunities with covid loads of people have been displaced and they needed income quickly and all of a sudden the whole market's reorganized itself And I think pay has inevitably uh, increased as well we look at the hospitality sector where again it's not historically particularly well paid in the UK else other countries very much a different story but in the UK it's students and part-time workers I think now there's been such a demand that the the, for for workers the the pay is going to have to go up unfortunately that means a probably an increase to consumers as well but look we've got nowhere else to go at the moment so uh, we should be spending it with our our local businesses (laughs) we've segued quite neatly here my next question for you is around the gender pay gap so 2017 gender pay gap reporting came in for organizations of 250 employees employees and over yeah that was just starting to get going there was some contention about the way the figures were worked out some people were mm. saying they're not perfect and sometimes mm. you do something and actually it would make the figures look worse because of the way things were measured and some people were saying we shouldn't have these measures in this way because because we don't feel that it's accurate or whatever but the the consensus was that we should be measuring those things there'd been a lot of consultation with employers to come up with those measures so not yeah. perfect but yeah, but, but certainly better to... than nothing. But then COVID came along. Yeah, since 2017, it's been law for uh, companies over 250 people and the public sector 
to, to report through an online system, which is accessible to everybody, but also to those organizations on, on their websites, to employees more, more critically. There's a government spreadsheet, which is fascinating. I love looking at the spreadsheet and it's all on there. So that came in. But then very soon after the the start Mm. of lockdown one, it Mm. was announced that it was paused. Yeah, it was well suspended for for the reporting for the sort of the 1920, 2019, 2020 sort of year. That was sort of suspended completely. So we've skipped a whole year in, in that sense. And then the reporting that should have happened in sort of March and April 2021 has been postponed six months until October. So uh, I think it's the 5th of October now. We've missed a whole year and we're six months, I think, behind on the the second year. It's potentially taken away some of that momentum that was coming from from, with it. And it's the message that's sent. And uh, bear in mind that a lot of the organisations, it was for the whole year, so it's of April 2019 up to March 2020 that was the period that was crucial to be reported after that nearly all the work should have been done by the time we went into lockdown and of course the people who were not necessarily specifically employed to look at gender pay gap reporting but it's hr usually who are dealing with this and yes there were other things to deal with a short delay maybe but to to pull the plug completely for a year i think was not necessarily the right thing now that's not to say that organizations couldn't have elected themselves and chosen to publish their own data and a lot did, not necessarily always through the government portal or, 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 to, or to do it sort of through the public record, but for their own staff, for their own benefit, because it, is, it feels like the right thing to do. We don't yet have the figures for the last year, which of course are going to be difficult to make any sort of real assessment over because so many people, sort of men and women, of course, have been either furloughed, working as sort of different hours, working to different pay, unfortunately, as well. Bonuses, unfortunately, I think in a lot of organisations have taken a bit of a hit. Others maybe have done really well, which could skew the, 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 the scales a different way. It's going to take us some time. We're going to have to look at the last two years or so, or even more, as being an anomaly. But it has really upset that progress that should have been made. It, it will be disruptive and it will make it more difficult to, to make any clear conclusions. And there's been talk mm. about different types of reporting for different types yeah. of pay gaps as well. So yeah. uh, the ethnicity pay gap was one of them. The Chartered Management yeah. Institute are advocating for reporting on gaps. Well, even, even more so, only in the last week or so, the CBI... The TUC, uh, Trades Union Congress, and well, the Quality Human, Human Rights Commission. Commission, they've come together to effectively lobby the government. And again, it's where business is leading the government here on ethnicity and race of pay gap reporting, particularly. A lot of organizations are already doing this, whether they're doing it publicly, whether they're sharing that information or not is a different matter right now, not because certainly they have to. Try and sort of get to grips with their own organisations and to see where those gaps are and to try and address them probably before it becomes mandatory at some point in the future. Now, I don't think it's going to happen in the next 12 months, but certainly after that, I'm hopeful that it will become back on one of the priority lists for, for the government as we start legislating to these things. The other one we don't have a lot of information about or not good information around is disability. The disability pay gap, I think, not to sort of dis- dismissive of any others, but I think is also critical right now. And particularly at this time when we are now trying to get as many people back into work, back to your sort of build back better. Well, better means making workplaces accessible to, to, to more people 
we know we can work from home now, or a lot of people can. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we taking these opportunities? And hopefully, this is one of those things which will be catalyst for, for good change, uh, not just bad. Indeed. Do you think it's about people's lived experience? Do you think until somebody's actually mm-hmm. experienced what it's like to be excluded, you don't yeah. know what it feels like to be excluded? I, I, I think that's a, a huge part of it. And, and even within the legal profession, that the, the big change makers, particularly around mental health and well-being, are the ones who've unfortunately suffered with their mental health and well-being and are now sort of working their way up or already out of the top of the tree and can influence change. That said, a lot of organisations as well, mental health and well-being is being driven by everybody from the bottom and from the top. I, I think that's fair to say. That's not just true in law firms, it's true across most sectors of society and of business now. It's younger people who are, I think, more aware of their own of mental health, of their own capabilities, of their own performance, much more so, I think, than, than I was growing up, and certainly those people ahead of me. And I think that change has been driven from there. If organisations want to appeal to sort of the brightest and the best and, and, and everything else that goes with that, then they also have to be looking at ways of working, mental health, well-being support, and setting out more clearly those opportunities for promotion as well, which is the one thing that often gets forgotten about, that it's not just about attracting talent, it's about maintaining it, keeping hold of it and, and helping it progress. It's not just bringing people in at the bottom. Do you think about physical health? There's been a spotlight on long COVID, yeah. for example. Yeah. Long COVID is a collection of lots of different implications mm. of, of having had COVID. For lots of other illnesses, people have had the implications of those for years, mm. but it's not been understood or there's not been that spotlight on it. Yeah, I think there's a risk that long COVID could, could become treated in some way similar to stress, which in itself is not a disability. It's the bits that go around it. It's the, it's the depression, it's the anxiety, it's, it's physical impact and, and problems caused by stress, which are the real from an employment law perspective, at least, but that's the real disability. So like stress, long COVID is really an an overarching umbrella of a number of different issues, which have been affecting people before to a lesser or greater extent, but it's giving a collective name and hopefully in some ways, a, a better understanding or appreciation by those people who haven't suffered from it, some insight. And the key thing about disability is that even if you've got sort of, a room of, sort of 10 people with the same disability, how it impacts them on a day-to-day basis and how they can be supported can differ person to person to person. There is no one size fits all. And for business particularly, this is one of the most challenging and difficult concepts to deal with. That You have to treat people like individuals. You've got to speak to them, understand them and assist them where required to flourish, be what they need to be to be able to function and to work in the way that you need them to do. And and I think that, again, with long COVID and with other things, that the real pressure from on business now will be taking the time giving people the space to understand how, when we slowly move back into the new way of working, how that impacts on people. That's not just about disabilities and long COVID. It's about the anxieties now that people have about, particularly in London, jumping on a tube, getting on a bus. There's talk now already of masks not being compulsory in confined spaces like shops. Well, what about the shop workers who feel uncomfortable? What about the the bus drivers? Or how do we encourage people back into the workplace whilst also 
is not one size fits all. We've got to treat people individually like human beings and understand them and and their needs rather than taking this blanket approach to things. And I think that's going to be certainly for the next six, 12 months, what we're seeing in workplaces, but also the legacy of that as it develops, unfortunately, into tribunals and uh, court cases and the unions becoming involved and taking action around that as well. So that, as I see it, is probably the next stage of my sort of year, uh, two years, life cycle, health and safety issues, disability issues, and inevitably more and more movement around Black Lives Matter and around the legacy now of, of Me Too and bringing about change, not just talking about it, but actually bringing it about and making sure that it is there to last. I bear in mind, uh, some discrimination legislation particularly goes back to the 60s and the 70s. And yet 50 years later, we're still talking about it because we haven't succeeded. We do have these bumps in the road. I think this is a bump, but I think it's a bump which is going to give us some momentum on that downhill and to get moving again, get some pace back into this whilst also trying to manage everything else which is going on as, as of the legacy of the pandemic. A lot of employers have mentioned Me Too, they've mentioned Black mm. Lives Matter. How much of that do we think is actually window dressing and how much of that is authentically understanding and wanting to do something about that? I think a lot of it has been really well-intentioned. I think that some people, even within the same organisations, might think of it as window dressing or, or at least let's be seen to be saying something about it. I think now those people are and those organisations are being called out by their own employees. If you're going to say this, you also need to back it up. And we're the people who need to see that. So what people say on a website, on social media as an organisation, and we've seen this around for years around the pride movements as well, these companies that come in for a month every year and say how supportive they are of the LGBT community. Well, what about the other 11 months? Where do we see that? How do you treat your staff? How do you sort of reach out to these people? In the same way that Me Too and Black Lives Matter, they're not just here for a soundbite. They're not just here for a day of action and activism. It's got to be built into the, sort of the, the DNA of an organisation. And, and the people who will keep a check on that on a day-to-day basis are the employees and not just employees, but sort of the future employees as well, the, the candidates, the applicants, they were the ones that now ask the questions of employers rather than it being the other way around. Employers are going to be challenged left, right and centre about these issues. And if you are putting something out on a statement or on a website, on social media, expect to be asked to back it up. That is where real change will happen. The the law has been there. The law has been helpful to a point on an individual one-to-one basis uh, where people have had the courage sometimes, the means other times to to fight their corner, to fight their cause on behalf of everyone else. This now is a much bigger movement. And we talked about allyship. This is my job now, not only with my clients, but also in, in, in and with other organisations that I work with, that we are the people that need to make that change and to make sure that that change is effective. But it takes more than one voice. Everyone needs the support of everybody else. And inevitably, there will be challenges. But the more information that's available to us, the more we talk about it, the more we shout about it, I think, hopefully, fingers crossed, touching wood and everything else that goes with it, that will bring about sort of the revolution that's been sort of hanging around for 50 years. 
So the call to action would be to all the listeners out there, when you're going for job interviews, when they get to the bit at the end mm. where they go, is there anything you'd like to ask us? Yeah. Ask them what their position is on LGBTQ. Mm. Ask them about what their position is on Black Lives Matter. Ask them about what their position is on Me Too. Um, yeah. So it takes... And- it takes yeah. quite a lot of guts to do that. It does. It does. And the, the people who should be doing that more than anyone else are sort of the, the white men like me. The people who don't fall into those categories, who, who, who should still, the allies, who should still be asking those questions. And because we do want to create a workplace which is fair, equal, sort of diverse, and where everybody has an opportunity to succeed. And that, I think, is of benefit to everybody in the organisation, not just to those, unfortunately, those of the the minorities still, who are not only having to fight their own corner, but haven't been able to rely on others to do it for them either. And I think that's now the real change. And it is happening, and I've seen it. So let's end on a positive, because it is happening. The real change is being affected. But it takes more, and it's each of our responsibilities not just to say, well, look, I agree with, I agree with Black Lives Matter. How do we take that to the next level? What, how do we sort of make real action, make real change in our small environment, in our sort of reachable environment, whether that's talking to family and friends, whether that's talking to people at a more senior level in an organisation, whether that's just talking to people and getting to understand them, know more about their challenges, their successes and taking an interest. Another point to mention, there are organizations who are taking this incredibly seriously. And in the last year or so, I've been advising more and more about what steps organizations can take. There's positive action. We can't have positive discrimination. That's unlawful, but we can take positive action. We can look about how we appeal to a particular demographic, to a particular minority. And and I think that just as important, even more important now than ever before. Unfortunately, there's a lot of pessimism around it, skepticism, simply because people are uncertain as to how they can go about it, because it doesn't sometimes feel right if you're favoring one group, even if it's a minority group, over others. There are very limited circumstances where it can be done, but it can be done. And I think the fact that people are asking those questions and challenging the law in due course about how that that takes effect has got to begin, be another good thing. So your role as a a male ally of gender balance and underrepresented groups more broadly, Mm. how do you see that role? How do I see it? I see a lot of my job, again, not, not because it is my job, but because I think I just fall into that group of people who do it, which is just to speak to people, just to get to, to get to know them and to be a more senior point of contact that they can come to. I'm relatively accessible, easy to get on with. I've got this sort of the virtual open door policy uh, at the moment. And then we sit in an open plan office anyway, so there's no door to shut. But aside from that, I think I am that person that people can come to that's hopefully relatively easy to talk to. Clearly some awareness around employment law issues as well and how people work and how workplaces operate and and people within them operate. So if I can be that person and I can amplify their voice, I think that's the right phrase now, not take their voice and use it, but to speak with them and stand alongside them and support them, then I think that's allyship. I think not standing back and agreeing with something because that's the way we've always done it. Asking the question, well, why do we do things this way? And sometimes being unfortunately, a little bit awkward or perceived at least as being a little bit awkward, a little bit difficult. But then 
that's my job as a lawyer to be, to ask those questions, to challenge people about things. The people that rise to the occasion are the people who relish the opportunity to tell you what they've been doing or to say, well, do you know what? We have, we have let this slip. We, we haven't done as well as we could have done. And that's what we need to change. How do we do it? And bringing as many people with us as we possibly can. Absolutely. And you'll be pleased to know we've got to the final question. What is coming up next for you? What are you excited about? What am I excited about? Do you know, I would love to have a holiday at some point. <laughs> it's been a long and tiring 18 months. What's coming up? Look, clearly, the fallout from the last 12 months, 18 months, the COVID fallout in terms of health and safety issues, in terms of furlough, in terms of the challenges that that brought to it, those people who've perhaps felt excluded during this time when they've been working remotely or whether they've not been working at all. How do we bring those people back in to the workplace, back, bring them back into the, the community and sort of rebuild that culture uh, as we want it to be, not necessarily how it was before. So that's what's coming up. Inevitably, there's going to be some tribunal cases around it. I think so equality discrimination is probably more so than it's been before at the top of the agenda. The, the awareness around it, the, the media coverage that you and others are giving to it, just giving people the confidence in themselves to challenge, to question, and the support that they need to, to be able to do that. I think that that's going to be a challenge for businesses. Even the ones who are doing well still expect to be challenged. And unfortunately, it sometimes feels to, to outsiders that the people who do well really, oh, well, look, they're doing well on these things. You shouldn't be challenging them, but, but we could always do better. I, I have some sympathy for some of them and particularly how the press sometimes covers things, the cancel culture that we, we see and hear so much about now. Sometimes that falls to people who are the allies, who are the good guys, the supporters, those people who are striving and have for a long time striven for equality and fairness. Um, but they will come out of this stronger if they're ready for the challenge and they can sort of respond to it in a good way. Then I think that the challenge is still there uh, to, to be dealt with. That's what we'll see a lot more about probably around the union culture. Unions seem to have fallen out of public, public consciousness a little bit. I think that will change again. There's huge motivation now between the trade union sector and those people who are looking to unionize or to just have a greater voice within the workplace. Those are the things that I see happening. Everyone's now just ready. So I'm going to say to you, Kevin Fulter, thank you so much. And can we keep in touch with you as well? Would that be all right? Oh, absolutely. Look, I've been a supporter of Womanthology from the early days and I will continue to be so. And an ally of Womanthology. How about that? I love it. Thank you so much, Kevin Fulter. Keep up the good work. Employment Law Partner at Freeth. Hello, my name is Ines Santos. I am the Associate Editor of Womanphology and I am here to tell you all about our new Men as Allies issue. The stories include Ross Fullerton, Director of Talent Acquisition at UserZoom, shares details of his new role at the company and how he's working with colleagues from across the business to take an inclusive approach to talent acquisition. 
He also talks about continuous improvement through Kaizen and not being afraid to try out lots of new things in the inclusion space. Rob Sims, Head of Health, Safety and Environment for Saffron Seeds GB, considers why creativity is needed in engineering to keep striving to increase gender balance and change perceptions that engineering is not a career for women. Rob is a previous winner of the Women's Engineering Society Men as Allies Award and a strong advocate for gender balance and inclusion more broadly. Sunil Jindal is UK country head at Diversio, the people intelligence platform that measures, tracks, and improves diversity. He talks about harnessing diversity and inclusion data, analytics, and metrics to provide organizations a richness of context and insight to show the full picture and help effect change. Chief Executive Officer at East West Rail, Simon Blanchflower, CBE, considers why inclusion isn't just about what happens inside the company. It's about thinking more broadly about the services the company offers and the way it works with all its stakeholders. Professor Tom Welton, OBE, President of the Royal Society of Chemistry, as well as being Professor of Sustainable Chemistry at Imperial College London, explains why it matters that we all think about all kinds of diversity, all kinds of disadvantage we encounter in our daily lives, and what we can do to take those disadvantages away by being more inclusive. We can all make a difference. Finally, Mark Lomas, Head of Equality, Diversity and Inclusion at HS2, shares the innovative work that is being done in diversity and inclusion on the project to link up supply chains and get companies working together to improve gender balance and wider inclusion. Do check out our website womanfology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all from me. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also follow the podcast. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. That's all for now, but join us in the next episode where we revisit some of your favourite mythology contributors and find out what happened next.